CBS News reposted a video that I think was first on Facebook. It is a video of a woman who fell face down on the train tracks in Montreal's Jarry Metro Station. It's not clear how she landed on the tracks in that subway, but she was bleeding from the head and was motionless on the tracks. The three men realized her predicament, bravely jumped down and lifted her off the tracks back onto the platform and in so doing, certainly saved her, delivered her from death. What these men did for this woman in the subway in Montreal in March of this year, pictures in a very small measure what Christ has done for us in delivering us not merely from physical death, but from eternal condemnation. It is this subject of the deliverance of Christ, or even in more technical terms, the redemption of Jesus Christ that I want us to reflect upon. That Christ is the one who delivers us or who redeems us. And this concept of redemption appears here in Galatians, in chapter 3 and verse 13. It appears here when Paul states, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. There, Paul talks about the deliverance that Christ undertook, the redemption. The Apostle Paul speaks about redemption in the context of an ongoing debate with the Galatians. The Galatians who had first of all been saved, but had heard from Judaizers, these were Christians, but they were Jewish in background who believed that to be saved, what only one not only had to believe in Jesus, but one also had to keep the law for salvation. And the Galatians who were primarily Gentiles had begun to accept this teaching, that they had to add to their faith good works to be saved. And so Paul has been arguing that, that this is not the way that they have received salvation. He has been arguing from Scripture that Abraham, the patriarch of old, was justified, declared by God to be righteous in his sight, not on the basis of what Abraham did, but merely on the basis of faith. This then talk of deliverance and redemption occurs in this ongoing debate where Paul is at pains to point out that we are saved by faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by works. And so in verse 10, this argument then against justification by works carries on in verse 10, where Paul now says, for as many as all of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul will string together several quotations from scripture to prove that the law cannot justify one. 
What he tells the Galatians in verse 10 is that anyone who depends upon the law to be righteous in the sight of God is under the curse. And why is that so? They're under the curse precisely because the law requires that a one was to be fully and completely obedient to the dictates of the law. The law did not require partial compliance. It did not require partial obedience. You couldn't, for instance, obey the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments and decide to ignore the other six. God required complete obedience. The law required complete obedience. And because it was impossible for anyone to continue perfectly in the law, that is to keep the law perfectly, the law condemns them as lawbreakers. So Paul is saying, you cannot be justified by the law because if you try to keep the law, you who are imperfect will be condemned by the law because you can never keep the law perfectly. And he quotes from the scriptures. Here he quotes and he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He quotes there from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. Paul contends further that not only can the law not save because no one can keep it perfectly. In verse 11 he says, categorically, that no one is justified by law. That is, no one is justified by keeping the law in the sight of God. Why is that so? Because scripture itself tells us that justification is by faith. And he quotes here, again, from scripture. This time he's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. And there, that is clear in Habakkuk 2, that one is justified by faith. So verse 11, he says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Those who are righteous shall inherit life. They They shall live, they shall gain eternal life by faith. So the the law cannot save you. It is by faith that one is justified and gains eternal life. In verse 12, he's still arguing against trying to keep the law to be saved. And he says, the reason that the law cannot save anyone, it is because the law is incompatible with faith. The law is about doing. Faith is about trusting upon what God has done. He says, for yes, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So that if one were to try to keep the law, he had to live his entire life trying to keep the law. But the law cannot save you because the law is not compatible with faith. So then, if all men, by virtue of the fact that they are lawbreakers, or we are lawbreakers, cannot be saved by the law, and we are under the curse of the law, the question that remains for us is, how then are we delivered from the curse of the law? And this is where we come to this, uh, this important verse in verse 30, 13. Christ has redeemed, delivered us from the curse of the law. I want us to talk about the primary subject here, that of redemption or deliverance. I want to talk about the nature of redemption first then the means of redemption, and then finally the purpose of redemption. The nature of redemption. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The verb redeemed, ex agorazo, comes from a noun, agora. And anybody who knows anything about 
the first century in Greek literature knows that the agora refers to the marketplace. So that ex agorazo means to purchase, to buy as one would buy a product in the market. When Paul says Christ has redeemed us and uses agora, the word from the root agora, it means to purchase. So that redemption is not mere deliverance. And that is why when we use illustrations, for instance, of the woman who fell in the subway, it is not a perfect illustration because that may be deliverance, but redemption speaks of deliverance by the payment of a price. That's what is unique about the language of redemption. It is not merely that one is saved or rescued, though these terms are in some sense synonyms with redemption. It, is, it denotes the freedom from some form of slavery by the payment of a price. Now, what is this redemption like? How does it occur? Paul says, Christ has redeemed us. And the first thing we need to understand about the nature of redemption is that redemption is the result of the salvific or of the sacrificial work of Christ. In fact, verse 13 begins in the original with Christ. Paul says Christ has redeemed us. And so we need to understand that the work of redemption, of purchasing us, is the work of Christ. Within the Godhead, there is an order. The, the Father does different works from the Son, and the Spirit does a different work. We know that the Father is the one who plans and sends the Son. We know the Son is the one who comes into the world and the one who dies on the cross for our sins. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who changes us and makes us Christians. And so one of, the, one of the work of the Son of God is to redeem, to purchase us. Now, we are not saying that the, that the other members of the Trinity, the, the, the Father and the Spirit, are excluded from redemption by no means. But redemption is primarily the work, the saving work, the sacrificial work of Christ. And we will say more about this. But the New Testament attributes redemption, this deliverance, this purchasing of us to Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus could say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there the word redemption is found in the term ransom. You understand, for instance, today there are people who are being kidnapped in the world. We have off the coast of Somalia, we have pirates who kidnap people at sea. We have ISIS in the Middle East who kidnap people. When they ask for a sum of money to be paid for the release of that person, the sum of money that is paid is called a ransom. Christ came to give himself as a ransom, as a payment to redeem us, to purchase us from our condition in sin. Paul speaks of this redemption in Romans chapter 3 where he says that believers are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24. And that is a marvelous text for Paul in the preceding verses indicts all humanity, both Jews and Greeks. Paul says that all alike are sinners. We have come short, fallen short of the glory of God. That even the Jews who had the law did not keep the law and therefore they were sinners. Well, what was God to do? There we have in Romans 3.21, 
But God in his righteousness provided a righteousness for us. And God justifies us because righteousness has been provided by the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. What I'm saying is redemption is primarily the work of Christ. Not only does the scriptures clarify that it is the work of Christ, the New Testament emphasizes that redemption, and I want you to follow me here, the redemption is the costly work of Christ. There is in the scriptures a a, a linking between what Christ did in purchasing us and the cost with which he did so. And one of the ways the New Testament signals that Christ's work is cross, Christ's redemptive work is costly is by using the term blood. Blood, to refer to the fact that he redeemed us by his blood, that he suffered and died. Blood refers to the life of Christ laid down in death for our redemption. This becomes, I think, obvious in Ephesians 1 and verse 7. Paul praises God in Ephesians chapter 1. And he will go on to catalog a list of blessings for which God should be praised. God chose us in Christ. And the first blessing he lists in Ephesians 1 is the fact that believers have been chosen before, before time in Jesus Christ. But in verse 7, Paul lists another blessing. He says, in him, we have redemption, deliverance through his blood. So that we must understand that Christ is the one who delivers us, but he delivers us at a very high price. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Our forgiveness, our deliverance from sin is by the blood of Christ. Perhaps no other apostle than Peter stresses that the redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished, the deliverance that he accomplished, was costly for Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, writes these words, that Christ redeemed us with, or that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, in 1 Peter 1 verse 19. So, When Paul says in the text before us, in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, he emphasizes that the nature of redemption is Christological. It is Christ who purchases it and that it is at cost. But it might be that the the verb redeemed, as used in verse 13, is in the aorist tense, that it signals that redemption is not merely a result of the sacrificial work of Christ, that redemption is a settled state. Christ has redeemed us. Paul is looking at the act of redemption as something which happened in the past and ended in the past. Now, I began with an illustration about the woman who fell in the subway in Montreal. It is conceivable, though not likely, but nevertheless conceivable, that she could return to the subway, and fall another time, a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a tenth time onto the tracks, and would require someone to to rescue her each time she falls. Human redemption or deliverance is never final. It's partially incomplete. But the redemption that we have in Christ, the deliverance we have in Christ, not only belongs to his sacrificial work, it is a settled work. By that I mean it is a finished work. Paul says, 
Christ redeemed us. He looks back at a past action which is complete. Perhaps no other writer than the writer to the Hebrews underscores the finality of redemption. It is he who tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. And here it is, having obtained eternal redemption. The redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished was a settled work, was an eternal redemption. He did it once and for all. Once on the cross, he paid finally and fully forever and forever for all our sins. This is a settled work. But redemption in Jesus Christ, not only is it a settled work, it is a redemption from a specific plight. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is a specific plight. We know that the language of redemption harks back to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. There they were delivered from the plight of political and physical bondage to the Egyptians. The New Testament, however, recast the redemption of Jesus Christ as a redemption from a spiritual bondage. And the cognates of redemption, that is, that is the, the words that Paul uses for redemption, are varied, like delivered and rescued. But Paul will tell us, for instance, that we were delivered from this evil age in chapter 1, verse 4 of Galatians. He says that we were delivered from the power of darkness when he writes to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 13. And, uh, oh, my dear friends, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he says we were rescued or delivered from the wrath of God. These are specific plights. Christ died and paid for our sins that we might be delivered from this sinful world, this world in opposition to God. He delivered us from the power of darkness that is Satan himself. He delivered us from the wrath of God, the anger of God that is coming upon humanity. But Paul uses the particular term redeem in reference to three particular plights. This includes the power of darkness, of course, and bondage to sin and to this world. But he says in Titus 2 verse 14 that Christ redeemed us from all lawlessness. So he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, for his own special people, zealous for good works. Sin is lawlessness. To sin, anomia, means to act against the law of God. Christ has not only rescued us from this evil world, not only from the power of this age, Satan, not only from the wrath of God, but he has delivered us from a life lived in lawlessness or sin. He has rescued us, redeemed us from all lawlessness. He tells us, according to Peter, that Christ redeemed us from an empty way of life. 
there, of course, I referred to the passage earlier in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, where Peter says, knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. And of course, the context there, Peter is encouraging the believers to conduct themselves, to live their lives in reverence for God. And the motivation he gives them to live before God with reverence, it is because Christ has delivered them. Christ has redeemed them from an empty way of life. That is, from a life that was characterized by empty religious practices, practices which they inherited from their ancestors. These are people who were worshiping God or worshiping the gods, but these were empty ways of life. It was not a true worship of God. So, so Christ redeemed us from an empty life. He redeemed us from lawless behavior, sins, and he redeemed, he redeemed us from empty, uh, empty way of life, an empty spiritual act. In our passage, in Galatians 3 verse 11, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from a specific plight. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were under the curse of the law. The law says curse to anyone who does not continue to obey it in all areas. But Christ has come to redeem us. And in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul expands on the thought that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He said, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Christ was born and took his place under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. Let us talk very briefly about this thing, curse. We, we, we look at the word curse, katara, and we understand that curse is usually a solemn pronouncement of evil or punishment upon someone. Even in the ancient times, people thought that a word, a spoken word, had great power. So one could pronounce a curse. In other words, it's a prayer, a wish that something bad would happen to somebody. And if a curse was pronounced, they expected something bad to happen. That is why, for example, Balak was after Balaam so that he could come and curse Israel because if he pronounced evil upon Israel, then he believed it would happen. Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So that the curse of the law is not that it simply imposes evil upon us. The curse of the law in specific sense is the imposition of the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon us. Christ has come then to redeem us, to deliver us from the penalty, from the sentence of death imposed upon us by the law of God. So what's the first thought? We notice the nature of redemption. A redemption that is rooted in the sacrificial work of Christ. A redemption which is a settled act. And a redemption which is from a specific plight. A redemption from the curse, the death sentence imposed upon us. I want to just make this very clear. Most people in the world today don't consider themselves to be sinners. Oh, they may think that they have a problem here and there. They may think they don't always do the right thing. 
but by and large, we think of ourselves as pretty good people. Anybody should love us. We don't see ourselves as criminals. We are good, model citizens, most of us. But where the law of God is concerned, the Bible considers us to be criminals, that we have a sentence of death passed upon us by God, that one day all of us will be called away to stand before God to answer for the crimes committed against his word, against his law, all of us. Now Christ came to deliver us from the plight of the death sentence imposed upon us by the law. Now the second question then is how? How does he do this? And so we come now to the means of redemption. How does he remove the curse? Well, Paul says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and here it is, by becoming a curse for us. The participle becoming explains that the means by which we are rescued from the curse is that Christ himself took the curse. How do we know that Christ became a curse? Paul again cites scripture. And this time he quotes Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 21 in a context where Moses speaks about the son, the rebellious son. He says if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord has given you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Here was a rebellious son. He wouldn't listen to his mother and father. Even when the elders of the city tells him to change path and change direction, he continues in oblivion to the instructions given to him. And so because he's a lawbreaker, he's eventually executed by stoning and his body is hung on a tree as a sign that this man is not only cursed by the law, but cursed by God. Now he says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become or becoming a curse for us. And Christ, we know, became a curse for us because he also hung on a tree. It means, therefore, that when Paul tells us that Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, Paul is referring to Christ's crucifixion. For it is on the cross that Jesus Christ hung. And that was a sign and signal that he, like the rebellious son, was cursed of God. It is precisely here that we understand redemption. It is precisely here when Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, that we understand why we are delivered. Let me say three things then about the redemptive death of Christ, the delivering death of Christ. First of all, the redemptive death of Christ, the, the death that delivers us, is a judicial death. Christ died because 
of a judicial sentence pronounced upon him. Now I know that the Sanhedrin, uh, the council of 70 religious leaders that ruled in Israel, pronounced Jesus guilty. We also know that the very weak Pilate, even though he, he was forced into it, it seems, nevertheless condemned Jesus because he gave him over to be scourged and to be crucified. But our Lord did not die because he was merely condemned by a human court. He was condemned by God the Father. You see, this is important. Because, you see, we are sinners legally. And if we are to be saved, we must be saved legally. And that is why Christ came and took the legal sentence of death. He was accursed. The law pronounced him guilty. He became a sin bearer. He became the ultimate disobedient, incorrigible son. He became the ultimate lawbreaker. The law imposed a sentence upon him so that we might be legally justified in the sight of God. He had to satisfy the charges that were brought against us by the law. And this was not an arbitrarily imposition of a death sentence upon him by the law. Christ voluntarily took this status as sinner. And so he redeems us because, because his death was judicial. It satisfied divine law. But more can be said. This redemptive death of Christ saves because his death was penal. And by that I mean it was punitive, it was punishment. He redeemed us by becoming a curse. That is, he hung on the cross. You need to recognize that the cross was punishment. It was not merely a sentence of death, but he endured the suffering of death. He was crucified. If I may say this reverently, God threw the book at him on the cross. God brought down the full weight of his infinite wrath and anger upon the head of the Savior. He was cut off from the land of the living. And though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. His soul was made an offering for sin. The cross was punishment. He lived a life of obedience. And he gave a laid down life on the cross to satisfy wrath. And we need to understand that Mel Gibson had it wrong when he portrayed the cross of Jesus Christ because the, the cross of Christ was not severe because of how he died or because of how much suffering he had. The cross was severe because of the internal weight of God's wrath upon him. That's where Mel Gibson could not capture the cross because he can't understand what it is for Jesus to bear God's wrath. Anybody can picture crucifixion. We have enough from history to show us how people were, were crucified, but you can't understand what it is to bear infinite wrath. You see, the cross was penal. Our Lord unloaded the entirety of hell's fury on Jesus Christ 
You see, he redeemed us by becoming a curse, by not only bearing the sentence of death, but bearing the punishment of death, the suffering of death. But this cross was a saving work because his redemption, his redemptive death, was also substitutionary. You will notice in our verse, twice Paul tells us in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, Jews and Gentiles, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Here he uses the preposition hooper, which means for the sake of, instead of. It suggested that Jesus dying on the cross was acting not only on, not, not, not for his behalf, not on his behalf, but on behalf of another. But not only did he die for the sake of, that is, for the good of others, he was dying instead of. You see, this is what Paul indicates. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He died for us, for our good, and in our place. He took our place. He took the punishment that we should have. There was a great exchange. And Paul continues to use Uper instead of throughout his writings. He said Christ died for us in Romans 5 verse 8. Christ died for our sins in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. In 2 Corinthians 5 21, who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in our place who gave himself for us for our sins in Galatians 1 verse 4 in Galatians 2 20 who gave himself for me and here in our text Galatians 3 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse for us Christ therefore the means by which he redeemed us is by becoming a curse for us by undergoing the legal and the penal demands of the law of God and by doing it in our place for us. But we must come very quickly to the purpose of redemption. Paul now states the reason Christ does it, the purpose of which he does this in verse 14 into that clauses that you find in verse 14. First he says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith Paul says that Christ redeemed us first that the promised blessing to Abraham might come to us what is the blessing of Abraham well earlier we noted that the blessing of Abraham is the gift of justification just go back to Galatians 3 8, 8 and 9 Paul says and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham before, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. According to Paul, the blessing that God promised to give Abraham and the blessing that we were to receive is justification by faith. Just as God promised that Abraham would be justified simply by believing, so God promised that we also, who believe like Abraham, would be justified on the basis of faith. Justification then is 
the blessing that Christ secures in his cross that we may be declared righteous by God. And this, this justification is only conferred to those who are in Christ. So verse 14 reads that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Only those who are in a faith union with Christ who are justified. The second blessing then is the reception of the Spirit. That we might receive the promise Holy Spirit through faith. Commentators, for instance, like Thomas Schreiner, Southern Baptist New Testament scholar, tells us that the blessing of the Holy Spirit that Christ won on the cross must not be seen as different from justification. And I think that while they may be distinguished, they cannot be separated. In fact, the gift of the Spirit is the great blessing for which Christ died that we may receive. Even justification is a blessing that comes from the Spirit. If we are to read, and if we are to read carefully and correctly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So that washing, sanctification, justifying, all of this are the fruit not only of Christ and God the Father, but also the Spirit. But the Spirit represents the supreme blessing for which Christ died, that we may receive. Jonathan Edwards, the New England Puritan theologian, sums up the Spirit as the totality of God's blessing upon his people. He says the Spirit is described as a spirit of promise in Ephesians 1 verse 3. He says the Spirit comprises the good things that God promised to his people. And he cites Matthew 7 verse 11 where Jesus is encouraging the disciples to pray, to, to, to ask and to seek and to knock. And then our Lord says this to the disciples. He says, if you then be evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Good things. Now when you ask the question, what are the good things that God has promised to give? In the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, we have virtually the same words except for this change. Luke says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that Luke understands the good things that God has promised as captured and encapsulated in Jesus Christ. That Christ redeemed us, that we may receive the blessing of Abraham justification, that we may receive the promised spirit who is the greatest blessing. And why is the spirit the greatest blessing? It is because there is none greater than God. That the spirit is God himself. And when Christ died to save us, to redeem us, it is that we might receive the Spirit, and in receiving the Spirit, we receive all blessings, including justification. What Paul is arguing then, very quickly, is that these Galatians ought not to try to keep the Lord to be saved, because they are under the curse if they do so, but Christ has redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And because Christ has paid with his blood, he has provided the righteousness which we need but could not earn. And he has given us the greatest blessing, the Spirit. What are we to do with this? May I suggest to you, my friends, that redemption in Jesus Christ embodies the good news we must treasure. You know, nations will boast about their treasures, boast about their cultural artifacts, natural resources, their inventions and technology. But for us who are Christians, our treasure is Christ and him crucified. There is no greater treasure than to have Christ crucified. In the first century, this notion of a crucified Messiah was anathema to the Jews. They saw the, the Messiah as an anointed deliverer who was going to come. He was going to rescue Israel from their enemies and he was going to rule over Israel. And there would be peace and blessing. He was God's man, God's anointed, supernaturally endowed with power. And for them to have in the same sentence, then Messiah and curse was an anathema. It could not be. And so they rejected Christ. In the 16th century, the Socinians, a heretical group who denied the Trinity, denied that Jesus Christ died to bear our sins. They said it was illogical that somebody else could bear our sins, that it was also immoral. And also today, we have those who are exponents of what is called the nonviolent atonement, that Christ did not die as punishment, as bearing our curse. But for us, Christ crucified is both the power and the wisdom of God that our treasure is knowing that Christ delivered us from the curse by bearing our judgment upon the cross that he delivered us by his blood. You know, in the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty, Prince Charming breaks the curse that the wicked fairy placed upon the princess. Prince Charming broke the curse with the simple gesture of a kiss. Remember Sleeping Beauty was sleeping for a hundred years and in rides Prince Charming and just with a little kiss the curse was removed. But you need to know that Christ did not deliver us from the curse with any trivial gesture like a kiss. He delivered us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He, he, he tasted the kiss of death. That our deliverance has come at a great price. And why did he take upon himself our curse? Because he loved us. Because he considered us precious in his sight. And for us who are Christians, we rejoice and we, we treasure Christ and him crucified because this is our only hope. But not only must we treasure Christ, the one who is our redeemer, we must know that the blessings that he conferred must be received. 
from Genesis 3, man languished under the curse. We were all cursed in Adam. We, we, we have a double curse. We have the curse of Adam's sin upon us, and we have the curse of our own law-breaking. We can't win. But God's intent was never to ultimately curse us, but to bless us. And he promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he will bless his people. And Christ has come and redeemed us that we should receive eternal blessings, the blessing of being declared righteous by faith. But we, we have received the blessing of the Spirit, the greatest spiritual blessing, the Spirit who regenerates and gives us life, who comforts us, who sanctifies us, the Spirit who steers us through life. Kierkegaard, the philosopher, tells us the parable, relates the parable of the royal coachman. This very rich man bought a team of horses which would drive his carriage. These were majestic animals who ran for great length and ran in great vigor with their heads high, majestic steeds. The rich man thought that he was a driver, that he could steer these magnificent animals, and so he took the reins. But after a while, the animals began to tire. And after a while, they weakened. They no longer ran with their heads high. They were weak and frail and failing. And eventually, he had the brilliant idea that he should pass the reins to the qualified coachman, the man who was trained to direct the horses. And soon after he passed the reins to the coachman, these animals began to pick up. They, they had a full head of steam. They began to gallop with great energy, with their heads high. These animals were running 30 miles at great speed. Well, what's the difference? You see, the rich man was steering the animals according to his understanding of horses. But the expert coachman was directing them according to his understanding of how to lead animals and lead horses. You and I take the reins of our lives. We try to steer our lives. And because we do not know what we are doing, we never ever come to the full potential that God has for us. So Christ died to redeem us, that he would give us the royal coachman. He will give us the spirit who takes the reins of our lives and guides our lives so that we will run with our heads high, giving glory to God. What I'm saying is Christ died that you might have the spirit. But if you are to receive the blessings of justification and the Spirit of God, you must believe in Christ because it is only by faith you can have Christ and His Spirit. You must believe. You must turn from your sins. You must trust Christ. You must take the blessings that Christ has won by faith. You must not seek to work for these. You must accept them, justification and the Spirit, by faith. 
But I would be remiss if I concluded by not saying to you that redemption is a great treasure that we must prize. It contains blessings we must receive. But redemption directs us Godward. Redemption points us in a heavenly direction. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that redemption is directional. It's directional. It is redemption from something, from the curse of the law, but it is redemption to someone, to God. In other words, Christ has redeemed us from the law and its curse, but he has redeemed us for God. How do I know that? May I very rapidly point out to you what John says in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. sees the crowded heaven of the saved people and they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, Christ, when he redeemed us, did not redeem us for ourselves. He did not redeem us that we should live for our own pleasure, but that we should live for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul links redemption with living for God's glory. He reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It is, it is apparent today that many of us believe that when Christ saved us, redeemed us, he redeemed us so that we should live as we please. We see the same thing in young people today. We are busy drinking, partying. People are, dear Christians who are dancing today, you would think that they were in clubs. You see it in, in Christian weddings. People are gyrating and dancing and having fun in the way the world enjoys itself. We somehow believe that we have been freed to live as we please. But you need to know that you are redeemed for God, for the glory of God. Paul says that we are to walk not in drunkenness, not in lewdness, and not in lust. We are redeemed to glorify God by a righteous living. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We, are, we, are, we were redeemed for God that we might glorify God in zealous service. Paul tells believers in Colossae, that they are to walk wisely towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Christ has redeemed us so that we might redeem time. That is, we might buy up the opportunities. We must snap up the occasions that we have to be a witness and to live for Christ. You, you have colleagues and friends at work. You spend a lot of time talking to them about the weather and about your family affairs and about business. But you have to snap up the time. You see, you are to use opportunities and moments to tell them about God and about Christ. He has redeemed us 
that we should glorify God in righteous living, glorify God in zealous service. He has redeemed us so that we should glorify God in joyful worship or in joyous worship. I don't want to go on too long, but can I let me point out to you? There's a problem in our churches today. Worship has become a matter of convenience. People today decide to worship if the circumstances are convenient. I will worship if the church provides for my teenage children. They have to have a young people's group. I will worship if there's Sunday school. I will worship if the people are nice to me. I'll worship if there's not too much traffic. I'm going to worship if the weather is great, not too hot, not too cold. If my schedule allows it, if I don't have too many family affairs to go to, to things to do. Worship of God becomes secondary. But when Christ redeemed you, he redeemed you that you should do your primary task. Do you know why you were created? Not to have fun. Sorry to give you bad news. You were redeemed, you were saved to glorify God, to praise him. What's the pivotal, what's the pivotal point of your week? Do you look forward to the end of the week so you could put up your feet and let down your hair and just relax? Or do you live to worship? Do you live to work or do you live to worship? Because you were created to be worshipers, to worship God. It's interesting that in Revelation, when John shows us the redeemed church, he shows us a church that is a worshiping church. He sees before the throne people who are represented by the four living creatures and the elders who are singing a new song. And only the redeemed can sing the song. What are they doing? He sees the 144,000 redeemed from the earth singing. And what, what I'm saying is this. You and I need to know that God has made us for his glory. Christ has died to redeem us for the glory of God. And we are to render our lives. Look, we were redeemed from the world and redeemed to God. And it means that from here on in, because the days are short, because we do not know how long we have left, that we would live in relationship with Christ, that we would bless him because he has paid for our sins. He has delivered us from the curse, but now we must give ourselves to God, all of it, all of ourselves. Redeemed us from the curse and redeemed us for God. That's, that's life. That's the true life, living for the glory of God. May God bless us that we treasure this redemption of Jesus and that we live for his glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.